We talk with James Trevelyan about expert engineers in this episode of the Engineering Commons podcast. He tells us why expert engineers are good at solving problems, but even better at avoiding them, and why the engineering profession may need finishers more than it needs doers. The Engineering Commons podcast explores challenges encountered by engineers, regardless of their field or industry. Join mechanical engineer Jeff, civil engineer Adam, and electrical engineers Brian and Carmen as they discuss issues of interest to today's engineering professional. This is episode 68, Engineering Expert, October 30th, 2014. So Brian, now that you've spent a number of years as an engineer, do you feel like you're an engineering expert? I think I have worked long enough to dispel any myths that I'm an expert at anything. <laughs> right. The uh, the longer you work, the more you know you the, the more you learn how little you actually know. Yeah, there's there's a way of a lot of stuff out there to learn, isn't there? Yes. <laughs> And, and is there any part of it that uh, you've been really amazed that you came out of school and you thought, well, I know it, and uh, now you realize that you you only see a, you know a small sliver of the big picture? Mostly software, I'd say. Right. But yes, that that happens on a daily basis. <laughs> and so, has there been anywhere that uh, you know you've you figured out how to turn that would would help you become a better engineer to become an expert engineer? Um, I, I would say that typically the, uh, my, when I've noticed experts, they tend to be very narrowly focused because I mm -hmm. think it will, to become an expert in anything, it will require such a massive investment of time and cognitive surplus that, uh, uh, I'd be worried that, uh, I would lose the broad focus that I have. So I've almost, almost intentionally avoided becoming an expert for that reason. Hmm. Interesting. Well, we're going to talk this evening with someone who studied engineering and engineering experts. And uh, our guest for this episode is James Trevelyan, who's a professor of mechatronics engineering at the University of Western Australia. And some of our listeners may remember Dr. Trevelyan from episode 17 when he talked with us about the value of engineers to their organizations. And so, James, welcome back to the Engineering Commons. Thank you, Jeff. It's wonderful to be back with you. Well, we're delighted that you're able to join us once again. So you're joining us because you've recently published a book titled The Making of an Expert Engineer. And so I'm kind of curious, what motivated you to spend uh, several years of your life researching and writing this book? That's a good question, Jeff. I'm, I'm not sure myself sometimes. <laughs> okay. But, uh, it, it, uh, if you could see me in the, in the flesh here in Perth in Australia, you'd notice I've got quite a bit of gray hair. Right. Uh, and uh, this, this journey started because uh, I got my gray hair out of frustration working with engineers in uh, in Pakistan, not because, you know, they were smart, very well-educated young people uh, mm -hmm. and very intelligent, yeah. but somehow they just had found it really difficult to produce practical results. And gradually I realized it wasn't just me. You know, I had this idea that since I'm British originally and Britain colonized uh, South Asia, that they might be taking revenge. Right. Um, but uh, it turned out that uh, pretty much every other engineering enterprise right across South Asia and most developing countries has the same uh, difficulty. And, you know, it seemed to be something to do with practical skills. But beyond that, I was simply at a loss for an explanation. 
mm-hmm. you know. Now, the catch was that these same engineers, men and women, would they produce wonderful results when they work in industrialized countries like the US, Canada, Australia, uh, in Europe, and so on. So my guess was it had to be something to do with the situation that they find themselves in in their home countries. And so I started making observations. I interviewed lots of them. And I, I had this naive idea that there would be lots of comparable data uh, from engineers in uh, industrialized countries, uh, you know, like, like the US, Japan, and Germany, and so on. Mm-hmm. But then after several years of searching with a research assistant, uh, we only managed to find a tiny handful of, of well-researched accounts that could tell us much about what any engineers do in their jobs. Yeah. You know, there have been quite a bit written on their politics, the way they socialize, uh, you know, uh, and actually there's quite a bit on software engineering um, and some other high-tech situations. And you might have come across Louis uh, Bucarelli's book, um, yes. Design Engineering. That was written in around some high-tech firms in Boston. But, right. you know, there was nothing on ordinary engineering, like engineers that work in food factories or water utilities. Right. So... As a researcher, this was this was like a goldmine, you know, a, a perfectly obvious question: What do engineers do? And no satisfactory answers. Hmm. So I got some wonderful students, and we set about filling that gap in our knowledge and understanding. And in the end, I discovered that it was all getting far too much to publish in journal articles, and there was some really exciting stuff coming out. So. When I started trying to explain it to engineers here in Perth, uh, I realized that I had to write it down in a book. And in the process, of course, it changed. But uh, never mind, it's out there now. <laughs> so that's, that's, that, if you like, is, is a story of 14 years of my life. Wow. Um, and uh, 25 major student research projects. So it's, it's been a wonderful experience and in, uh, an incredible series of discoveries and really interesting. And I think that uh, you, you know you'll find a lot of that interest in the book. Yeah, and, and so your your subtitle to the book is "How to Have a Wonderful Career, Creating a Better World, and Spending Lots of Money Belonging to Other People." Uh, <laughs> that might even be better than free. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm wondering is is the case for engineering as a wonderful career better advanced by the opportunity to make the world a better place, or by getting to spend lots of other people's money? Well, of course, both at the same time. <laughs> right. You know, I, I, I tell my students, uh, if you're going to really enjoy engineering, you need to spend money. Uh, and it's much more fun if it's other people's money. Uh, I, I've done both. I've spent some of my own money as well. But I can definitely right. tell you it's, it's, it's better when it's other people's. But, <laughs> but seriously, seriously, the, I think the, the great engineering opportunities, particularly for young people, mm-hmm. are in making the world a better place. And, and the difficulty is that we're critically short of engineers who can make it happen. And that might, might sound a bit odd, particularly in this time when a lot of engineers are struggling to find work. Um, you know, everybody wants to reduce pollution, carbon emissions. We want more reliable energy and water supplies, mm-hmm. particularly for the vast majority of people in this world who don't have water that comes out of the tap any time of day and you can't drink it even when it does. Um, all we need is money. But And at the moment, there's heaps of money looking for a safe place. You know, you look at interest rates, they're at record lows, right? even negative in some places. But the trouble is that we engineers are having a lot of trouble delivering reliable and predictable results. Now, this is not my research, 
but what other people have done. Uh, engineering projects over a billion dollars, our success rate is only one in three. Hmm. Uh, and that's judged by projects that provide a financial return better than 50% of what was expected. Uh, and even if you go l uh, smaller projects between 100 million and $1 billion, uh, only two in every three succeed. Right. According to Meatloaf, that ain't bad. <laughs> well, <laughs> but, you know, put it, look at it from the point of view of the investors. Yeah, oh, yeah. Uh, why would you – Yeah, they're justifiably scared. And uh, so that's, that's the, the big issue as I see it. You know, and in the book, I, I talk about a, a case study of a, a what in today's terms would be a you know a multi-billion dollar project building a pipeline across uncharted territory uh, hundreds of kilometers in length uh, and that was done without uh, done at the start they estimated the cost without even a map and brought the whole project in you know on more or less on time and on remarkably only 8% over budget that's mm -hmm. not bad and to have done that without all the modern aids, uh, you, you say, well, you know, they knew how to do things, and we've lost the plot today. So he's one of the first experts I describe in the book. The estimator? <laughs> no, the guy who did it. Oh, oh sorry, off. yeah, the case study. Fact, I'm, I'm sorry about that. You know, yeah, there's so, uh, you know, and there are engineers like that in the, in the world today, but there's so few of them. And we know so little about them mm -hmm. uh, that it makes it really hard for young engineers to learn. Has there been a shift in population? Uh, are these remarkable people in the past that simply stand out and we forget the uh, non-experts? Or has the population really changed? You know, it's, it's hard, hard. We don't, simply don't have the data to tell. Uh, but there are certain aspects, you, historical issues that you can look at. Uh, when I graduated, and, I, and I'm not sure about you guys, I can't see how much gray hair you have. Um, <laughs> None yet, thankfully. But uh, when, I when I graduated, most of my peers went into large engineering bureaucracies, either run by government or by large uh, corporations. And they, they had a dreadful time, what they thought was a dreadful time. Lots of paperwork, writing specifications, administering contracts, you know, sometimes for – you know, building a sidewalk, but um, and, and small projects like that, and they hated it at the time. But what they were learning was how to deliver projects on time and on budget. Mm -hmm. And uh, the the best of them were then taken up by private corporations uh, and smaller firms after they'd been there and and learnt the art of engineering, if you like, engineering practice. Now. In about the 1980s, uh, governments and many large companies decided it was better to outsource their engineering. Right. And uh, that was that sounded great on paper, uh, but what they didn't do was outsource this training. And as a result, a lot of this uh, knowledge of engineering practice has has literally walked away. You know, I get uh, companies approaching me and they say, look, we're about to hire a chief engineer, but can you give us a job description? What does a chief engineer do? <laughs> <laughs> so, so are these companies just at a loss for what the function is and they feel like they need a chief engineer or are they just uh, following what was done in the past? They had a chief engineer and so they assume they need one now. Well, I, I think they just don't know. You, you know, I came across a major engineering company 
Uh, in fact, I, I, know, I knew of the company quite well, but I came across the person responsible for training graduate engineers. And I asked her, what was her background? She said, oh, I'm a secondary school Japanese teacher. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, oh, so it must be quite a challenge for you to figure out what they need to learn. She says, yeah, because nobody else seems to know either. <laughs> right. So I guess you can't do that bad of a job then. One of our largest firms simply gave up and handed it over to the graduate engineers themselves and said, you decide what you need to learn. So there <laughs> is, we do have this loss of knowledge. And uh, as I've pointed out in the book, what we've seen over the last uh, 20 or 30 years is that practically everyone with industry experience has walked away or retired from engineering schools. And uh, Jeff, you must be one of the few. Um, still there, and <laughs> right. and so consequently, it's it's really tough for students because they just don't get exposure to practice through the stories. Yeah, it, it it's really difficult to uh, make some of the connections. You know, you, you throw up a slide of uh, in the in the course I'm teaching right now. We're teaching the students about Bode plots, and uh, so you throw up a Bode plot and you say, "Here's an equation. You know, here's a first order, here's a second order equation," it, but uh, I struggled trying to explain, okay, what would that look like in the in the field, in practice? What kind of machines would have this type of response? Uh, yeah, you can say, well, you know, you, you push down on the bumper of a car, you get a certain damped response, or, you know, the, the wings of an airplane in certain conditions will give you a, a certain response. But even then, it's hard to find. I look for, for good vi videos on YouTube, that kind of stuff that, that you know, shows shots that make it uh, easy to understand. And I, I have difficulty there. And, and I just, I really long to be able to take students out into industry uh, factories and show them machines that are actually, you know, having that kind of response. Yes, so do I. And, and you know, what's really interesting is that so many of the students are not interested in going. Um, when we do turn on these visits, uh, they groan and say, do we really have to turn up? Really? And um, yeah. And um, <laughs> I always love that know, part of going to school. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, some of them love it. That's quite true. But but many of them, uh, you know, find it. I think they they just find, feel completely out of their depth. And uh, you know, it, there's a lot generally a lot of noise. It's hard to hear. Um, quite often, the guys or the, the you know the young women who take them around are, are not necessarily trained engineers, so they don't even know what these young people are interested in. Hmm. So it, the, we, we have got this situation where engineering practice has, has almost vanished from the academy. Now, now, if you compare that with medicine, you know, in, in, in most medical faculties, all of the teaching past the halfway point is done by people who practice medicine every day. Right. So even though, you know, the literature will tell you that young doctors still find it difficult to understand real practice when they're out there, uh, they're infinitely better off than engineering graduates. So that's why, you know, one of the reasons for writing this book is I've realized that there's so much basic knowledge that uh, young engineers need to have in order to understand what's happening around them in the workplace because it's so radically different. Uh, in, in many cases, many situations, radically opposed to the, the framework of ideas and actions that you find in formal education. Right. Well, and, and I have to say, I'll, I'll just, you know, from the beginning here, that, that I really enjoyed this book and uh, skimmed through uh, a number of chapters, but, but read line by line other chapters. And the thing that I really enjoy about this is that whereas I've read other books that 
dance around this issue, you've gone in and you found you've either done the research yourself or, you know, worked with the researchers or found other people that have done the research and you cite it in the book. And so if you're interested in, you know, do engineers really use uh, tacit knowledge, you've cited it in the book. You you have the academic uh, backgrounds, uh, sorry, the academic citations listed. And so for that reason, I really love this book. Uh, it, it's not hard to read. But if you want the, uh, you know, you want the hardcore evidence, you've provided that as well. Well, thank you, Jeff. Uh, you know, in explaining this to, to students, and that, that's why, although I'm a practicing engineer myself, half my life I'm developing new air conditioning technology. The other half I, I work at a university with uh, engineering students and uh, undergrads and postgrads. One thing about engineering students is that you put evidence in front of them and they're at least half convinced. Uh, they may, <laughs> may find it difficult to, to reconcile it with their understanding of what engineering is all about, but at least you get them on side to begin with. So that's why I realized that if I was going to write this book, I had to provide the, the solid evidence, as solid as we can. Well, and you have a number of, I'm just, you know, I've just opened up to a, uh, a particular, you know, any particular page, but I, I can't, you've listed misconceptions and I happen to be looking at misconception 15, a concise and logical explanation is sufficient. And you note that students, novice engineers, often think that a technical idea can be conveyed to another person with concise and logical explanation. And then on the other side of the column, you've got research demonstrates. And this is where I love what you've we've provided in this book. You're not just saying it is my opinion that you actually show the research. Research demonstrates that, particularly for engineers, bringing other people to a usable understanding of a new idea is difficult, time-consuming, and can be very stressful. Logical explanations are just the start of a lengthy process that involves many steps, takes time to prepare and deliver, and requires careful monitoring to ensure that the new understanding is influencing behavior in the way that was expected. So you've got you've got these sort of scattered throughout the book, and I, I really enjoyed sort of discovering these as I went through the book, things that rang true to me that that I always wondered about, well, how come nobody ever talks about this? And in this book, you talk about it. Thank you very much, Jeff. Well, certainly. Yeah, it, it, it's hard to get problems distilled down to, you know, one or two or th even three sentences that are nice, clear, concise, anybody can understand. Um, I, I go through that at work sometimes with customer issues and they want to know why something happens. And sometimes just the, the sheer number of dominoes that had to fall to get that to, to happen are just <laughs> – you can't do it in three sentences. I, I You know, I think part of the issue is that, that – uh we are educating very bright young people. You know, en engineers mm -hmm. are, are generally speaking very smart people, and they and they find learning easier than most. Uh, thank goodness, because they have an awful lot to learn. But the, the difficulty arises because it's so easy to forget that other people fa find it a real struggle. And as engineers, one of the one of the observations I made uh, on this journey was to to realize how much of the time we're teaching other people. Um. And, and how badly we do it so often. You know, I, I count myself in this. I, I have muffed it up so many times uh, because you, you overestimate the ability of other people to understand what it is that you, you're talking about and, and the time it takes for them to, to come to some kind of understanding which is sufficiently aligned that they're going to do the work right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. This is this is radio only, but I'm raising my hand too. I'm guilty. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and the other thing that I found teaching classes is that I I have an idea in my 
mind. I read the equations. I prepare for the class. I think I'm ready. And then you get there in front of people and you get that quizzical look and you realize I'm not at all equipped to explain this concept. <laughs> I, I've got to, I've got to go back about seven steps to, to really lead into this. And I don't know how to go back those seven steps. Well, I, I hope that the, there's a chapter in the book about informal teaching and mm-hmm. what I've, what I've done there. You know, here I built on research by lots of our colleagues and, and particularly at Purdue. There's, there's a wonderful group there. Um, building up an understanding of what's required for in engineering education, how you actually teach people. And a lot of that can be applied in the engineering workplace. Mm-hmm. And so one of the, the radical ideas that I presented to my colleagues here in Australia was that we should really be teaching our students to teach engineering so that they learn this ability to teach others. Um, but it was too radical. <laughs> I got that glazed. I got that glazed look, like like uh, you were talking about uh, with with the students. <laughs> right. How would you work that into a curriculum? Would you have all the engineering students become TAs for you know a certain period of time? Or well, some people are already doing this, uh, and um, you know, peer teaching has been used by many people. Uh, the idea being that. Students themselves have a better idea of what their fellow students are having difficulty understanding, and they can provide much more immediate and useful feedback uh, to learners. Uh, so we know that it works well. It, it's just perhaps the logistics are hard, and I don't know of anybody who's really tried it out on a grand scale, uh, but I'm quite sure it could be made to work. In fact, you know, the, the thought that's gone through my mind in uh, for several years is that we could make engineering programs in universities so much more exciting. In, in fact, uh, some of the ideas that uh, Dave Goldberg was talking about, mm-hmm. by combining the technical learning with the social learning as well. Because when you think about it, education is a highly social process. You know, Students learn far more from each other than they learn from the, from the lecturers or the, the professors. Yep. And so that social process is happening anyway. But students have this idea that somehow it's underground. It's not the stuff that you talk about or admit, you know, the idea that you got someone else to help you do, do your uh, lab report. Right. But actually, that's the most valuable form of learning. And I think that we can build on this and create an environment which is much more like professional practice within the academy. So mm-hmm. that once uh, graduates get out there, there's a, there's a much smoother transition. And part of that would be learning to teach. That, that's an essential part of it. Because, simply because, you know, as engineers, we never build anything. We always, other people do the building because we don't have time. And right. so, you know, unless you get the ideas across, and that's basically teaching, somebody's going to uh, do the wrong thing somewhere along the line. So with, well, in our conversation with Dave Goldberg, we went back and talked about the Grinter Report and how that sort of changed the evolution of engineering education because we're going to teach engineers more math and science and have less, I guess, what we'd call hands-on activities. But what I'm hearing you say, I think, is that we need to, we may not need to go back to the hands-on activities, but we definitely need to to do more incorporation of the collaborative activities. Let's let's take those one at a time. Hands-on okay. activities, <laughs> hands-on activities, definitely. Uh, okay. Really, really, really important. You know, even if it's building with paper and cardboard. Mm-hmm. Um, but going back to the Grinter report, you know, the Grinter report was on the money. Not many people realized that they 
their main recommendation was that at least 25% of the curriculum should be devoted to uh, uh, studying human behavior and social sciences. Wow. Yeah. And we took that to be uh, history classes. <laughs> well, that's part – well, you know, even history classes can, can have value if they're well presented. Mm-hmm. But, of course, right. um, you know, engineering deans found this unsettling and difficult. And so that, that recommendation was forgotten. Right. Uh, and so, you know, in many ways, the Grinter report was definitely on the money. They understood, those people understood what the needs were at the time. But perhaps what's happened since is that our understanding in the social sciences has gone ahead by leaps and bounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, we've been through some difficult periods. I remember one of my colleagues in the 1980s was telling me that every time he applied something from psychology about student learning, it had precisely the opposite effect. Um, <laughs> but that's, but that's changed. And, you know, there's, there's been tremendous progress in understanding of learning, uh, understanding of sociology, uh, anthropology, and so on. Uh, and we can apply this to engineering. And, and I think we're going to get left behind as engineers if we don't. So what I've tried to do in the book is introduce a lot of this stuff in a way that's hopefully more friendly and useful for engineers uh, so that they can build on this stuff. So do you think we'll run into problems um, as more of these older engineers who have had that education you know, start to retire and we lose their expert knowledge? Uh, all these young up-and-coming engineers, I guess myself sort of included in that, do you think we'll be self-teaching in the workplace and sort of reinventing the wheel then? Or uh, do we have a way to pass down this knowledge? That's what we're doing at the moment. In, in fact, uh, you know, I, as part of my research, I've met uh, very senior people in, uh, you know, in some very well-known American corporations. And I was amazed that at the depths of the U.S. recession, their number one problem was struggling to find engineers that could produce repeatable and predictable results, their number one problem. In spite of the fact that so many engineers were unemployed, they could not find engineers with the kinds of skills and abilities they were looking for. And, and that reflects this loss of knowledge. Uh, that's, that's already happened. It's not something that's in the future. It's, it's in the past, if anything. And that's one of the reasons, I think, why these large projects are coming unstuck, is because that knowledge has, of how to do it has been lost and has to be rebuilt. Yeah. Yeah, I see what you're saying. And have you come if if a academic degree is no guarantee of having these engineering abilities, uh have you come across any way for determining in advance whether a person has those skills other than throwing them into the fire and seeing how they do? Uh well, that that's very sad and unfortunately that's exactly what does happen. That that young people get thrown into the fire without mm-hmm. guidance um you know, engineers around them say, oh, I'm too busy to help. Um, right. I've got this, this and that to do. So there's endless accounts in, in the research literature and the anecdotal literature that this is happening all the time. And yeah. we are losing so much talent in engineering simply because young people get thrown into a, a situation where they, they're not given the learning support that they need. You know, right. we have to accept that engineering schools are what they are. And it, it will take decades for them to change and be more responsive to what the, the real needs of, of engineering professionals are. And, and that's true right around the world. Uh, engineering curricula have become 
almost universally standardized thanks to the influence of uh, ABET, particularly in the USA. Right. So we have to set about uh, providing training and support for young people after they graduate. So it's my hope that this book will be very will be useful in that respect. In other words, it, it helps senior engineers understand more about what what uh, less experienced engineers at all career levels can learn and how they can improve their performance. And the evidence from the research is that there's huge performance improvements that are possible. So James, do Corporate cultures get a pass, or uh, specifically the leadership at com- companies. Uh, you know, in a, mo- in a more MBA-driven world, it seems that companies only want to hire an engineer for a given task, only employ them for a you know a short, predetermined amount of time, and then release them. Yes, I can understand where you're coming from. Now, having talked with uh, corporate leaders uh, around the world and political leaders. I think it's important to understand the perspe- their perspective. Uh, you know, when you have gone out on a limb to justify a 10 or $20 billion project and you have seen it run off the rails for reasons that you can't understand, but it's in the hands of a, bunch, a large bunch of engineers, you get a pretty yeah. jaded view of engineers. And as one corporate leader summarized it to me recently, he said, I get rid of engineers at every possible opportunity. I simply want them out of my organization to the greatest extent possible. <laughs> this, this, unfortunately, is the, the view of corporate leaders and government leaders around the world. And as engineers, we have to respect that because they provide the money. They go out on a limb and try and persuade investors to place their money with us. And uh, I, I think I can put it in another way too uh, and, and perhaps – help uh, all of us engineers deal with this issue. It has to do with respect. Um, So many of the engineers echoed the same comment in the form of, this company is run by bleep accountants or bleep lawyers. (laughs) Bleep being unmentionable in polite company. And so uh, I, I soon realized something was going on here. So now my response is that in case of, of a, an, you know, accountants, I say, well, could you please explain to me, there's a term that accountants use a lot and it's called accrual accounting. And every engineer I've put that to has got this, again, a glazed blank expression on their faces. And then I go on and I explain, I said, listen, you know, for an accountant, Accrual accounting is a more basic concept, a more fundamental concept than stress and strain are for mechanical and civil engineers. It's explained in about page four of, of a basic accounting text. And, and the lesson is this, that if we don't take the trouble to understand the language of the people we're dealing with, how can we expect them to understand what we're talking about? You know, if you're going to, if you're going to take out a, uh, you're going to find a partner, a romantic partner in, on the streets of Paris, let's say, and you really want to, to go out to dinner and have a, a wonderful night, maybe a wonderful week, you know, the first thing you do is you take along a French phrase book. Even if you can't speak French, you at least try. And, <laughs> and as engineers, we've fallen into this trap of, of believing that, uh, if we simply avoid technical language, 
then people will understand what we're talking about. And this, I think, is where we've been left behind. The, the rest of the world, uh, philosophically and intellectually, has moved on and has taken a, a completely different idea of language with them, one which is much more reconciled with the realities of human communication than us engineers. We have this naive idea that when we use words that they have standardized meanings and uh, you look up the meanings in a dictionary or in a standard and, and as long as you stick to those meanings, everybody else will, will uh, have no difficulty understanding what you're talking about. And this doesn't work in practice. Uh, and this takes us into a lot of difficulties. So that's the picture that emerges. That yes, I, I, give, I give perhaps a B plus or an A minus grade to corporate leadership uh, in terms of respect among engineers, I would have to give a, a C minus grade at the moment. We can do much better. And that's one of the reason, reasons why we don't get treated with as much res respect as we would like. It's because we don't give that respect. <laughs> it's a tough lesson to learn. But, the, but the, <laughs> the, the advantages of learning it is, is that once you break through that, once you gain the confidence of people that you can produce results, uh, that you treat them with respect, you listen and understand their needs – uh, then they will give you huge amounts of money. And, and I learned that very early on in my career. You know, I was involved in building uh, robots for shearing sheep. And I, I looked at this as, a, as an incredible intellectual challenge. It was fun. Uh, and I said, look, we need at least three years to get started and to build something which we can be confident in. And they said, but we can't wait that long. You know, we have to show results to our constituents within 18 months. Um, so I said, well, if you give me two or three times as much money, maybe we can talk uh, and then we can get it done a lot quicker. And they said, yes, please do it. Uh, but it was that key to understand that they, the people giving us the money, they were responsible to other people who were very anxious to get results and were facing a critical situation. And even if it wasn't perfect, they needed some sign that there was a light at the end of the tunnel very early on. Mind you, it took another 10 years to, in fact, more than that, I think it took 12 or 15 years to get a machine that worked really well. But they stuck with us because we built that confidence really early. Yeah. So it's all about building, it's all about building perceptions, uh, and, and developing confidence among the people investing it. And as engineers, by and large, we have lost that for the time being. We need to regain it. And so does this come back again to the ability to finish off the project? And so early in my career, you know, I kind of flailed around. I would try something, and and fortunately, I I worked in corporations where there are some other experienced engineers who could say, "That's a great idea, Jeff, but you're never going to get that done, you know, within time and budget, or you're 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 being too uh, uh, aggressive in trying to push the envelope. Pick your battles and back off here." And so I can easily see where, where engineers that don't have the, the guiding hand of experienced colleagues could flail around for a bit and frustrate their investors because they're not finishing off the projects. Yeah, you're quite right there. You know, one of, one of the engineers I interviewed uh, told me, leaned back in his chair and he said, you know, James, the only two times I have really enjoyed myself in this business is when the clients forgot to ask, has it been done before? <laughs> and that captures the the desire that we have as engineers to innovate to find a better way to do it but uh, once again the clients are putting up the money and we need to be conscious that 
First of all, we have to provide them with a credible prediction of what can be done. And secondly, it has to be credible enough for them to put up the money, and they have to have confidence in us. The second part is delivering on that promise, and that's where mm-hmm. we're not doing very well. Uh, it's really interesting if you look at, uh, and I take this back to engineering schools, uh, where things ultimately do have to change, but, but once again, please remember that we can't change schools quickly, so we have to move the school out into the practice environment. Um, but there's so much more said about anal- analysis, uh, design, and prediction than there is about delivery, delivering reliable results. Mm-hmm. And that's absolutely crucial. So, yes, you're quite right. You know, Getting more experienced engineers to help you so that you don't make promises that are not going to be, not going to be deliverable that's crucial for, for engineers to develop their expertise. One of the misconceptions you listed in your book that I thought was interesting was that you said it's a misconception that engineers are problem solvers. Yes. Which would seem like a fairly controversial statement. How, are, how is it that engineers are not problem solvers? <laughs> well, of course we are. But so is everybody else. Uh, uh-huh. You know, uh, we solve problems every day, figuring out where to park the car, for example, if, you, if you're lucky enough to have a car. You know, I have a, a wonderful Italian colleague who's very proud of the, the ability of Italians to innovate. And mm-hmm. uh, he, he's got this wonderful story about when you go uh, in a big city in Italy and you need to find a spot to park your car, uh, if you can't find a spot, you simply stop the car and paint, paint a car parking bay around it. <laughs> <laughs> so that you can claim you were legally parked. You know, right. So this is the point that, that as human beings, we all solve problems every day. So claiming that engineers are problem solvers doesn't get us very far. Uh, and what I learned in the research uh, by going through all my interviews was that expert engineers are experts because they know how to avoid problems. And that's the key right. thing is being able to build on experience so that you avoid problems as much as you possibly can because Every technical problem that demands a solution on the job is an extra cause, cause of risk, uncertainty, the possibility of late delivery, and the possibility that there'll be unintended consequences, uh, things that, that you just couldn't anticipate that emerge during the service life of whatever it is that you're building. Uh, yeah. So that's why you know prudent engineers build on past practice as much as they can and definitely when you're putting up a project, you, you find a way to describe it to your investors in a way that it seems like it's been done before. It may not have been done before, but at least it <laughs> seems that way. <laughs> right. That sounds like how you pitch a movie. It's, hey, yeah. remember that movie you really liked that made a million uh, billion dollars? It's like that with a twist. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Good way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> well, throughout the book, James, you talk about well, I guess early in, I, I must admit, I've read more carefully in the early chapters than the late chapters, but especially in the, the, the first four or five chapters, you talk a lot about the difference between explicit knowledge, implicit knowledge, and tacit knowledge. And could you just give us a brief overview of the differences between those three types of knowledge and, and its role in the engineering profession? You got a couple of hours? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Uh, no, look. Well, maybe, um, maybe just an explanation of the three terms will get yeah, us started. No. So, um, you know, the easiest way to start is to, to realize that as engineers, we rely a lot on unwritten knowledge. 
and and a lot of that knowledge simply can't be written down. Uh, you know, maybe if you had a few hundred years to write, it might be possible. So there was a philo- English philosopher, Michael Polanyi, he came up with this idea in the 1960s that we know more than we can tell. We know more than we can tell. And he used the idea of knowing how to ride a bike to explain this. And he called it tacit knowledge. That is, knowledge that we have, but we're not aware of it. So when you think about it, knowing how to walk, talk, understand what other people are talking about, how to recognize stainless steel the moment you see it, uh, you know, how to, how you know the, the function of a circuit just by looking at it. So much of what we use every day is knowledge in our heads that we would never write down. Mm-hmm. Now, that, that's what we call unwritten knowledge, and some of that knowledge is labeled as, as tacit and other is implicit. We won't go into the distinction between that here. It's in the book. On the other hand, explicit knowledge is the stuff that you that's written in books, and you can read it on the internet. And the great thing about explicit knowledge is you can send it to someone else without losing any of it. Uh, but getting them to read it and understand it, of course, is quite another thing. <laughs> right. So, but but with tacit and implicit knowledge is that you can't simply transfer it. You know, it's nearly impossible to explain it to somebody else who doesn't have it. And after all, that's what makes us experienced engineers. When we talk about experience, what we're really talking about is this tacit and implicit knowledge. So I don't know if that, that's, you know, probably the best way to at least start the explanation. And, and the crucial, right. the, you know, there are crucial implications in terms of how we, how we tackle engineering with the help of understanding that so much of what we use is, is unwritten knowledge and you can't simply teach it. The, so the other end of that is if you can't teach it, is there any, is there any way to test it? I mean, so we can have, I guess if we want to know if somebody knows how to ride a bike, we put them on a bike and say ride and either they can or they can't. That's, that's just our approach to engineering, isn't it? But young engineers, we throw them in the deep end. Now, the right. smart, the, the smart thing to do is to look for somebody who's, you know, uh, ask around and find somebody who is known to be good at riding a bike and say, would you please do that? Um, and that's what engineers end up doing. So, uh, in the book, I talk about this idea of distributed knowledge and distributed cognition. Uh, and mm-hmm. this is the idea that, you know, within any engineering project, there's just not enough time to transfer a large amount of knowledge between people. So, the, the way to, that we solve it is by getting other people to contribute, make skilled contributions. And, what you what we find from the research is that the really important part is getting them to do that in such a way that they really want to do it. So they collaborate willingly and conscientiously, uh, because they're quite often contributing knowledge in a way that you don't understand. Uh, you know, if you think of a skilled pipeline welder, for example, mm-hmm. uh, that that person welding the pipes has, has so much experience of how to do it. Yeah. I can learn how to weld a pipe, but you know it'll take me ten years to do it as well. So it's much right. better to get that other person to do the welding—a really skilled, skilled person. And we do this in so many ways. You know, in in for example, in in some of the the engineering design offices, we found that there are people who act like gatekeepers. And if you want to know anything in a particular standard, you go and ask Simon, who sits over there in the corner. And you say, Simon, where can I find this out? And he'll, and he'll reach behind into a bookshelf or these days pull it up on his screen and he'll see, see, this particular standard on page 477, paragraph 2.1, 
you will find what you want. <laughs> right. Now, that person is invaluable because, you know, we haven't got time to go searching through standards to find the right paragraph. But that particular right. person is, is his or her value, Simon's value, is that he has all that encyclopedic knowledge of what's written down in the standards and can help you find the right spot almost immediately. And that's what mm -hmm. I mean about getting willing and able, uh, willing and conscientious collaboration. Because if Simon, you know, if you, if you rub Simon up the wrong way and he's simply not going to cooperate with you, he'll simply say, Oh, come back tomorrow. I'm too busy. Or he may never give you the answer. He may never give you the answer. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so you have to maintain good relationships with these people. And, and yeah. this idea that you have to build relationships is, is something that's quite strange for young engineers who think, well, it's just their job, isn't it? You know, they're supposed to help you. Right. And they don't. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, find it. So, I, I, you see, so this, yeah, I'm just explaining this, this idea that, you know, knowledge is distributed in the minds of many people. So the key, one of the key things about becoming an expert engineer is to understand this and to realize that it's not your own knowledge that's the, the key to expertise. It's the ability to build on other people's knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. The ability to track them down when you need to can really shorten, uh, you know, the development of a project. And when, when those people are around, you have to pick their minds all you can or as much as you can. That is so true. I've I've uh, been somewhat embarrassed, but not really because, you know, I'm still a new engineer. I'm learning. But when they point out something that I overlooked and have to go redo my measurements again, it's like, ah. But at the same time, now I know for next time. Exactly. Yeah. So one of the things I that's, uh, that's neat about this book also is you've got a, a lot of information that is available as part of online appendices. And in one of those, you've got about a, a 20 page appendix that lists approximately 150 different types of engineering activities, ranging <laughs> from time planning to quote preparation to staff development. And I was excited when I saw this because I thought, yes, somebody is finally not just talking about all the things engineers have to do, but is actually listing them so somebody can study them and, you know, consider them and what, you know, what skills. But, I suddenly had this thought, does an expert engineer have to be expert in all of those? Well, of course not. You know, even with a lifetime, <laughs> you can't do right. that. Uh, and that yeah. That's why this idea of distributed knowledge and expertise is so important. Uh, the, the key to being an expert engineer is to be able to put, put a group of people together um, that have the combined knowledge and, and experience necessary. So that that list is really a, a prompt to say, have you thought of somebody who has this kind of knowledge or this kind of ability? Mm -hmm. uh, in our research, we typically find that most engineers would be doing about a third of the stuff on that list at any one time. And most had experienced pretty much all of it at some stage during their careers. So expect to be doing all of it one day not at the same time, and never think that you're going to be an expert in in any but a but a few. Right. But you know, as I said, part of the idea of being an expert is to gain the willing and conscientious collaboration of others to help. Yeah. So one of the lessons from the research about young engineers is that the university grades really don't make much difference when it comes to the the performance that's recognised by their supervisors. Uh, the one ca uh, 
characteristic that did show up in performance evaluations was the ability to get more experienced engineers to help. And, hmm. and uh, you know, the trap that many young engineers fall into is to rely on their peers. You know, it's much easier to be ask a stupid question of somebody that you feel is at the same level. And, uh, hmm. but there's, but there's, you have to question the wisdom of asking a question from the very people who are going to be least able to give you a good re- good reply. <laughs> <laughs> right. So it's better to grit your teeth and be prepared to look stupid by asking a dumb question uh, and realize that the person you're asking, they were in that position, you know, at some stage in their career too. So we've all been through it. And right. there's nothing as stupid as forgetting or not being able to ask the really dumb question that everybody forgot to ask. And so how do we go about teaching that to students? It's, I think of the, uh, the saying about you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. You know, the opportunities are there, but I, I, well, as a young engineer, I also was very worried about appearing stupid, you know, not having a good question or not, you know, not already knowing the answer. Yeah. And, uh, occasionally, in, in my case, it took one of, one of the other engineers to sort of say, Hey, you need to go talk to that person. You know, don't be talking to me. That's the person that has the knowledge. Go talk to them and figure it out. And once you've done that a few times, you figure out it's not quite so horrible and uh, they don't bite your head off and uh, it will all be okay. Yeah, that's very important. But again, uh, let's move away from this idea that students are going to learn this. We have to talk about engineers in the workplace because uh, I've, I've come to the conclusion that this material in the book is so uh, foreign and so difficult uh, to help students understand in, in the formal education environment that it has to wait, at least for the time being. So that's mm-hmm. why in the conclusion, my suggestion is that we need to work with senior engineers first and help them build up a vocabulary, a, a catalog of ideas that younger engineers need to learn so that they mm-hmm. can then explain uh, these ideas and and with the authority that they have had years of experience and they know this stuff works. So my so far what's happened is that when experienced engineers see this stuff, they say, gee, yes, that really makes sense. What you've done is you've put into words what I've known for years but never been able to describe. <laughs> so I hope that this works for lots of other senior engineers so that they can then talk to younger engineers and help them understand these ideas earlier. Uh, you know, when looking back on my own career, if I knew half this stuff when I was set starting out, it would have been so much easier. Yeah. So that's where I think it has to happen. Uh, and we have to be reconciled to this. It has to happen in the workplace. And I appreciate that. The problem is not with getting the students better educated, but with getting the, the senior engineers better able to, uh, to uh, distribute their knowledge, to that, uh, share right. that with the younger engineers. And, you know, and, and to recognize how lost it is to be a young engineer these days. You know, how, how lost you feel when you first start. Uh, and yeah. and uh, senior engineers need to be able to argue the case with their employers that this is really valuable, uh, a really valuable investment. Uh, what I found with, with many of the companies I've worked with is that senior engineers do this, but they have to, they're expected to do it in their own time. There's no charge code. Right. <laughs> and, it, this this all has to do, of course, with the reputation of engineers, which, as I said, needs to be repaired. So it's going to be a step-by-step process. 
But it's really important to understand that there is so much that young engineers need to learn. And, you know, I mean, after all, the book is 600 pages. Uh, Jeff, I hope you didn't drop it. <laughs> no, I didn't. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, and when I first set out, I thought, gee, you know, 300 pages is fine. But in the end, it ran to 600 pages because there is an awful lot there. Um, and, and I think it's worthwhile stuff. Uh, I would be uncomfortable about deleting much of it. So it's going to take time for people to learn it. You know, it's not the kind of book you can pick up and read in an afternoon. You talked about uh, talking with other engineers and their their reaction to your research and to your book that you've listed stuff. And I had I had the exact same reaction. You you are listing stuff that I've known for years, or I've had you know, I've had this sort of emotional sense about, but but really never knew how to put into words. And so I appreciate the fact that you've done that. The other thing is exactly as you said, this book has so many ideas and you cover so much uh, material that it really is more like a reference book in that you know there's this is not while the, while it's easy to read the language is is quite easy to understand there are some pretty profound ideas in here and so i i think that uh, for most engineers it would be the type of book where you read a section and you ponder it for a you know a moment or two or a day or two or a week or two and then move on to something else it, it, there is a lot of material in here yeah i would hesitate to prescribe more than one chapter a month <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think it, you have to take it easy. You have to take it slowly. Or come back to it. Right. Uh, so I'm looking at, you've got a figure in here that, that you talk about aspects of technical knowledge used in engineering enterprises. And I just love this sort of stuff. You've, you've listed in one corner, you've got, you've got little clouds of information here, and you've got abstract science and math, which is kind of what we learn in school in one corner, uh, environmental constraints in another corner. But, but within these, you've got little clouds about human behavior and previous designs and design philosophies and product definition, industry standards and codes, measurement, test, inspection, uh, analysis methods, diagnosis techniques, all these little bits of information that truly, as an engineer, you get exposed to somewhere along the way in your career, but uh, doesn't get talked about much. That, that's right. You, you know, when, when I first started creating that, uh, that list, if you like, uh, it was by analyzing uh, countless interviews with engineers. I thought, my goodness me, this is much more complicated than I ever imagined. You know, even, <laughs> even though I'd been a professional engineer myself for 30 years, the complexity of it all was, was uh, set me back. And, and I've struggled with this complexity all the way through. You know, it's somewhat paradoxical that the, the first list of activities that I, that I came up with as a result of analyzing interviews and, and talking with engineers, we had, uh, I think, 85 entries on it. And wow. uh, if you look in the book, there's 85 uh, practice concepts in the book. So in this journey of trying to simplify everything, I, I really have to admit that you know I haven't been very successful. I've tried to simplify the ideas and uh, build one idea upon another, but we have to understand that there is complexity and it does take time. And, you know, I think it goes back to the thing in the introduction. You feel you, feel you can never be an expert in engineering because there's always so much to learn. But, but at least understanding what there is out there, I think, might help. And uh, that's why we, we have to live within our limitations and understand that, you know, in a, a big engineering project has lots of people on it because they all bring different kinds of knowledge with them. And, they won't necessarily fit together easily, but 
that's the challenge of engineering. The, the wonderful challenge is to get all these people working well together and producing an exi- producing a result in the end that everybody stands back and looks at and says, wow, we never thought we could do it. And we've done it. Yeah. <laughs> in spite of the fact that we convinced the investors to put their money up and, and swore that black and blue that we would do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds like what you keep talking about, the, the missing component to engineering, at least to me, it sounds a lot like uh, project management. Do you have any idea why that's not a integral part of engineering education? Is And I know in my education, it was sort of that thing we talked about for about 20 minutes and then moved on. Is that seem accurate or? Uh, it's actually now uh, in around Australia, it's becoming a, a major component. But again, I have to say we need a word of caution here because although there's a chapter in the book called Project Management, uh, there are some serious misconceptions, particularly in the minds of uh, young engineers about who have been trained in project management. Uh, for, uh, and there's very good uh, online courses as well as the Project Management Institute and others that, that uh, help to make up for any deficiencies. The difficulty is that project management, and, and I'm going to be very partisan here and, and living in the world of engineers, it's something that was stolen from engineering. Engineers uh, evolved this discipline of project management in the 1960s and 70s. And then lots of people in other areas of life looked at what we engineers were doing and said, gee, we could do that too. And as a result, project management has has now evolved to a point where it is isolated from the technical uh, foundations on which it was first developed. And the technic, the technology, the technical uh, issues in project management that are crucial for engineering have been forgotten. So one of these is how to write technical specifications. It is really hard to find a reference book that teaches you how to write technical specifications from the technical standpoint. What do you actually write in it? And this is of crucial importance in engineering projects. So I don't want to go to to go into too much detail, but it's important to understand here that there is it's a lot more than project management what I'm talking about. Project management is actually just one aspect of it, but its absence in many engineering courses is simply a sign that, as I said, that that practice has walked out of the academy. And we have to live with that for the time being. We can't change engineering schools overnight. But maybe with time. <laughs> maybe with time. But look, we don't have time. <laughs> right. right. These, the, these threats in terms of climate change, uh, the resource depletion, um, they're real. And, and I address that in the book. Um, there are predictions which have held up remarkably well, even though they were done 40 or 50 years ago. And these predictions have some really uh, difficult lessons for us to to come to terms with. But, you know, the great thing is that these challenges are wonderful opportunities for engineers. We need more and more engineers and engineers that can produce results predictably so that people are not concerned about providing the money needed to do it. So Mm. uh, that's the big lesson in the book. Uh, There is so much to be done and so much rewarding work for engineers to do and rewarding in the sense that they'll not only get paid uh, more but uh, will also do wonderful things for people on this planet 
So it sounds like uh, the, this ability to communicate, whether in technical specs or in just uh, sharing ideas with, with colleagues, is important. And I was kind of fascinated by the, uh, the idea that we spoke recently with Dave Goldberg, who in his book, uh, A Whole New Engineer, talks about some, some coursework that they started at iFoundry with classes dedicated to noticing, listening, and questioning. And then uh, independently, you seem to have arrived at the conclusion that engineers need to focus on the skills of listening, seeing, and reading, which seems uh, at least uh, somewhat related. Why are these skills of, of perception uh, so important to the practicing engineer? Well, it's, it's, it seems to be a truism, but uh, what the research shows is that uh, engineering practice involves learning all the time. So mm -hmm. not only is there so much technical stuff, new technical stuff that you learn because you suddenly find that you need it in a particular project. It may have been around for a while, but you just haven't learned about it. And, and you need to learn so much about the other people you're working with and their capabilities. Uh, you need to understand the social and the commercial needs that are driving a project. So uh, you can't learn without perception skills. And what I found is that... Uh, so many, so many, so many people take their perception skills for granted. I did myself. Uh, mm -hmm. Once I started assessing the skills of my students, I realized what a gap there is for for nearly all of them. So, if you want to become an expert engineer, the first place to start is by being aware of and improving your perception skills, so that you can learn all the stuff that's out there around you. And mm -hmm. I think it's wonderful that Dave Goldberg has drawn attention to this. Uh, you know, um, he's written such a, an inspiring book, and I hope lots of educators read it. Um, I think it's really sad that, that we ignore these basic skills, even in higher education. Uh, you know, uh, there's so much scope to improve education just by emphasizing these skills alone. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was a student of mine, a very perceptive one, who came along to a meeting with uh, very eminent academic colleagues uh, where we were going to discuss the students, the ways that students can learn com effective communication skills. And when I raised this issue of listening, he came in and he said that our current teaching practices undermine perception skills. So we record lectures routinely. We provide handouts with lecture notes. Uh, we really don't mm -hmm. even expect students to listen. So it's it's <laughs> so there's no incentive for them to learn, and uh, right. you know I found one of the interesting gaps that I found is that we don't really have properly researched ways to measure listening skills in higher education. Um, so I've had to be rather ad hoc about how I do this, and the same applies in in both reading and, of course, visual perception as well. So you know when you realise how much engineers have to learn and the, the importance of learning it quickly that we have to start with accurate perception skills so that's why the the if you like the the real guts of the book the real teaching content starts with methods to improve these skills that you can do yourself and uh, that leads on to everything else it's the foundation and these these uh, concepts, these these uh, skills or, or 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 exercises that you have in the book, these are not just things that you created for the book. I I believe you have been using these uh, techniques with your students for a number of years. Oh, I've used the, yes some of them up to thirty years, uh, so okay. they work well. But I'm sure it's not to say that other people couldn't improve them. Right. 
but it's it's you read so many books that talk about sort of abstract ideas and they go, well, you know, you just need to think a little harder and try a little harder and rah, rah, rah. And uh, I just wanted to uh, point out to our to our listeners that this book does contain some 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 exercises that have been proven over the years. That's right. And in fact, the, the reading exercises are based on actual engineering practice. So some of the some of the practices that we have seen being used in companies, I've adapted those in a way that that uh, individuals or groups of students can use to improve their their reading ability. Terrific, terrific. Now there's a, there's an, a bit of research that that I came across in the book that is of uh, particular interest to me. And that's because on a recent uh, episode of this podcast, we had a discussion about what was the right programming language for engineers. And so we, we talked about whether it should be in C or C++ or we should be programming in Python or MATLAB. And Adam kicked in and said, it doesn't matter, guys. Everybody uses Excel anyway. So you have done research in this area. Tell us what, what programming language do engineers use? Adam, you're right. (laughs) Excel and Visual Basic. Uh, Visual Basic to some extent, but mainly Excel. And and the reason is pretty simple. Uh, You know, particularly in large corporations, the IT specialists will lock down computers to make it harder for us to muck them up. And so it's ridiculous. You can't just install any kind of software you want. But you've always got Excel there, and Excel has Visual Basic built into it. So you can take it with you and run it almost anywhere. Now, of course, the problem about commenting on programming languages is I'm bound to be out of date. Uh, we've got this shift <laughs> that's uh, even starting to affect uh, engineers. The, the, the shift, of course, from uh, desktops to laptops and ultimately, I guess, to tablets. Uh, and right. we've gone from large software applications to tiny little apps. So, of course, it'll change over time. But but I suspect that uh, once Excel and Visual Basic gets well-established on tablets, that it'll stick there for the same reason. It's portable. <laughs> right. So, you've written this wonderful book. It is being marketed, it looks like, as a textbook by the publisher – was that the intended audience when you wrote the book? My intended audience is engineers everywhere. Um, okay. I think that the publishers had a bit of difficulty trying to figure out where they would place it because there's not very many books that combine uh, high-level research with uh, down-to-earth teaching for the, for the workplace and for people who haven't got much time. So as I said to you earlier, at, at 600 pages, they didn't have much room to move on price, but – I would see this book as an investment, uh, and the the evidence we from our research is that expert engineers earn an awful lot more than normal engineers do because for most of them they stumbled onto these ideas by accident themselves. So right. I think passing on this knowledge is definitely uh, something I would see as an investment. It, it's going to cost far more in time by the time you finish reading it than the purchase price. <laughs> um, a good point. It- but uh, I hope I hope that everyone will find I hope that every engineer out there will find they can learn something useful, and uh, it's it's at least. Oh no, we lost Uh-oh. a bow. By the way, is this this idea of trying out ideas on engineers and and seeing whether they relate to them? Uh, but one of the feedback 
you know, the things of feedback is, oh, so, so everybody else's job has so little technical content as well. Mm-hmm. Many of the people I interviewed said, you know, I feel really guilty because I really don't do very much engineering these days. Why are you talking to me? And, uh, you know, this is the same for everybody. Uh, there are, the, the engineers spend much more time on these, this work that's associated with collaboration than, than you do on solitary technical stuff, the design calculations and so on and so forth. And a lot of the people who have seen these results have been very, have felt much more comfortable about what they're doing. And I hope that others do too. Right. Yeah. So on uh, uh, Amazon here in the US, the, the book is selling for approximately $110. So it's not a cheap uh, book, but I think you make a good point that it's a, uh, it's a valuable resource and, and a, uh, a worthwhile investment. Um, the other thing I wanted to ask you about, though, is you talked about the fact that expert engineers make more. Do you have any you know, definition of what makes an expert engineer? I, do you have certain questions you would ask of an engineer to determine whether they would qualify as a quote-unquote expert? Well, during the interviews, I used to switch off the recorder and say, if you don't mind, could you actually tell me what you do earn? And mm-hmm. that's when I started to discover some of these engineers were earning so much more than I could have imagined. Um they were really reluctant to talk about it because they felt embarrassed in in some cases. <laughs> right. But but that's not the way you would you would describe an expert engineer. I've tried to do that in the book, and and if you like, what I'd like to do is just read a couple of sentences for you. Sure. So there's no absolute measure, uh, but first, as an expert, you will have that quiet confidence that you can overcome any engineering challenge that is presented to you and do it well. It's not effortless, but it will seem that way to others. And you'll be able to do this without losing sleep or having to work till 3 a.m. in the morning and then come back to the office at 7. The next is that you'll be able to deliver on your promises on time or earlier without feeling exhausted when you're finished. You won't necessarily be the world's best engineer, but you won't be much less proficient than the best in your own field you will be able to accomplish market-leading performance without undue effort and stress. On a few occasions, when you need to do better, perhaps the best in the world, you will have the reserve capacity that will help you do that. And other expert engineers will agree with your decisions, probably most of the time. But when they disagree, they will acknowledge that your decisions are equally good, just different from theirs. And that's based on the interviews I've had with these experts, uh, it, it's a distillation of what they have said themselves. Right. Right. And, and so we started off the, uh, the conversation. I asked Brian whether he considered himself an expert. And he's, he kind of said that, no, he didn't. He, the longer he went, you know, the longer he was an engineer, the more he realized he didn't know. Do expert engineers consider themselves experts? Do they know they're experts or do they consider themselves uh, just as vulnerable as, as all the rest of us engineers that are struggling to, to make things happen on a day-to-day basis. Look, uh, we all have that sense that, you know, we're stuffing it up, uh, we're not really doing it terribly well. Uh, and, and that's part of the reason why experts are constantly finding ways to improve their performance. So mm-hmm. that humility to say, yes, I can improve is always there. But I'd take you back to the description. You know, it's a question of relating your performance to others. Part of being an expert is to at least have some ways you can assess your performance. And you will be quietly confident that, yes, you're up there with the best. Hmm. 
Very nice. Well, we should uh, we should probably wrap this up and let you get on with your uh, your day. You're, whereas we're uh, coming to the end of our day, you're starting yours, so we should let you get on with the uh, the business of your day. It's been a great pleasure to talk to you, Jeff and Brian, Carmen, Adam, and uh, I'll follow your program with great interest. All right. And if somebody wants to get a hold of you, where should uh, where should we send them? Uh, there's there's a blog site I've set up where people can write comments, uh, but they're welcome to email as well. Okay, and the uh, is that okay if we we list those uh, the website and the email and the Absolutely. in the show notes? Very. Good. The last the last words the last words in the book are that uh, you know any reading experience ultimately has to be interactive, and I can't be with most people when they're reading the book, but at least I can be online and do my best to answer questions and and continue the conversation. Terrific. Well, I hope our listeners will take advantage of it and. Uh, make access of the book and as well as your online uh, content. I know. I'll definitely check it out. I'll have to see if I can expense it at work. <laughs> <laughs> Continuing education expense. Uh, get get your boss to buy it for you. <laughs> okay, does, well, the, do you sell it on DigiKey? Because I could probably slip it into an order pretty easily then. <laughs> <laughs> I have to check out the Kindle version. <laughs> All right. Well, James, thank you so much for joining us and, and uh, spending time on the podcast and, and uh, sharing some of your insights and knowledge with us. Uh, it's been a pleasure, Jeff, and all the very best to you, you people in the U.S. Enjoy your, your winter holidays. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> Come on back anytime. <laughs> all right. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye now. Good evening. Bye. The Engineering Commons is produced in affiliation with Big Beacon, a social movement for transforming engineering education, located on the web at bigbeacon.org. For more information about the podcast you've just heard, please visit theengineeringcommons.com. Our theme music is by Paul Stevenson. 